Now, I don't think I need to tell any of you that a lot changed with the pandemic. We can even see some examples of that here in our worship space. Until very recently, our chairs were set up as little pods rather than as rows. And you guys got really good at moving the chairs around, and frankly, some of you continue to do that, which is okay. I just have to reset again every Sunday, but that's okay. That's okay. It is exercise. Uh, You've noticed probably that we don't have paper bulletins anymore. Now we keep you up to date on announcements and the schedule, the calendar of events for the week. Uh, We link the sermon audio to an email that we send out to you, an electronic bulletin that we send out on Mondays uh, that hopefully all of you are receiving and looking at. We have a live stream. And so now if you're on the road or if you're stuck at home for some reason on the Sunday morning and can't participate here in person, you can participate, you can join us via the live stream. Anybody remember what these are? (laughs) Offering plates? We don't have an offertory anymore. Instead, now we invite you to put your tithes and offerings in the wooden box that's back uh, by the double doors there. But perhaps the biggest or most significant visual change that persists in our sanctuary is this table. This table that's set here in the midst of what we are doing. Now, some of you might know why this table first got set here at the beginning of the pandemic. See, in the beginning, when we started our live stream, our camera needed to be right here, and we needed something to kind of shield that camera as well as protect it, and so we put this table here. But of course, we've now upgraded our live stream, and our cameras are now placed in a much better position on the back wall there. But this table has remained here, and it's going to remain here. And I know that for some of you, that seems like an odd thing, that here at a Baptist church, we would have something like this that looks kind of like an altar sitting right in the middle of a sanctuary. That doesn't seem very Baptist. (laughs) Some of you probably just think it's inconvenient, maybe in the way at times. But this table is going to stay here. Because I believe that this table helps us to follow Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at a story that is going to illustrate why. We're in the midst of a sermon series from the Old Testament book of Joshua. This is a book in which we see how the Israelites both entered and then claimed the land of Canaan. A book in which we are shown how God was faithful to keeping one of his great promises that he made to Abraham, the promise of a homeland, a great homeland for his people, his descendants. A book that is designed by God to still very much speak into our lives today. And so this morning, we are going to see the Israelites finally enter into the promised land. 
We are going to learn how and why they memorialized that event. And we're going to consider what their example teaches us about what we can do to more faithfully follow Jesus today. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible or Bible app on your smartphone or tablet, grab one of those red Bibles in front of you. And if you're using one of the red Bibles, um, I believe that Joshua 3 is on page 333. It's easy to remember. Joshua 3 on 333. All right, well, where we are picking things up today in our series, the Israelites, they are still on the east side of the Jordan River. This is this boundary river uh, between where they are and the land of Canaan. And at the moment, they're about six miles away from the river. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it is finally time for them to enter into this land that God has promised to them. All they need to figure out is exactly when and how to do this. Well, Joshua, who is their newly appointed leader, he tells them what to be looking for, what's going to signal to them in terms of when and how to do this. So Joshua 3, starting in verse 1. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits. It's about 1,000 yards. Between you and the ark, do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. So Joshua tells the people to watch out for the moving of the Ark of the Covenant because God is about to do something amazing for them. Now, this would be the same Ark that is featured prominently in that classic Indiana Jones movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. I imagine that many of you have seen this, but the real history behind this Ark is that it was built by the Israelites when they were there at Mount Sinai. At God's direction, they fashioned it out of wood and gold. Inside of it, they kept the Ten Commandments, Aaron's staff, which had budded, and then a jar of manna, this wafer-like food that God had provided each day for his people while they were wandering in the wilderness so that they would have enough food so they wouldn't starve. And so this ark was Israel's most sacred object. Only the priests were allowed to carry it. In fact, it was... It was the premier symbol of God's presence among them. And so Joshua tells the people to watch for the ark because it's going to show them both when and where they are to go. This land that lies before them, this land of Canaan, it is completely unfamiliar to them. But because, but because God knows it, he's the one who made it, he is going to show them the way. All they need to do is to obey and follow as he leads. Verse 6. 
Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that you may know, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the Jordan's water, waters, go and stand in the river. So two things here are about to happen. First, God is going to do something amazing. And then secondly, God is going to exalt Joshua. So something about what God is going to do in just a moment, this amazing thing, is going to further raise Joshua's standing amongst the Israelites. Now, this is important because Joshua is their newly appointed leader. Uh, He's filling a role that had pretty big shoes. He's filling Moses' shoes, who had been the previous leader. And so it's important that he be exalted among the Israelites. Verse 9, Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men, 12, 12 men from among the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. As soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and will stand in a heap. So here's the amazing thing that God is about to do. He's going to cut off the flow of the Jordan River. Now this is a river that's actually running, at this point, that's running at flood stage. And so this is now going to be the means by which they get across. God's going to cut off the flow of this water. Now, even as God says this, Joshua then says to each tribe, give me a representative from your tribe. Now, at this point, we just don't know why. Now, one of the things that you're going to see as I continue to read this story to you is that this story does not really progress in a strictly linear manner. It kind of moves forward and then takes, circles back a couple of steps. It moves forward, circles back a couple of steps. Moves forward, circles back a couple of steps. Each time, repeating certain information, but then also adding important elements that we need. It's a storytelling technique that enables this author of this text to emphasize certain things to help ensure that that as we read it, as we consider it, that we don't miss what's most important here in the text. I think you'll see what I mean. Uh, Verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. 
It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan. Archaeologists think that this is a city that was about 20 miles upstream of where the Israelites were trying to cross. While the waters flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. While all, the, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Notice the emphasis here on dry ground. That is a phrase that should trigger something for you. It, is, it should trigger a memory. It, it's intended to link us back to another important story in Israel's history that we also have in the Bible. Now, if you're not sure what I mean or what I'm referring to, don't worry, because the author is going to circle back to it again. You'll see. Uh, So chapter 4, verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe. Sound familiar? We've already heard this, right? And tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan. From right where the priests are standing and carry them over with you and put them down in the place where you stay tonight. So now we learn why the 12 men, one from each tribe, were selected by Joshua. Each of them, as they walked across this riverbed, they were to pick up a stone and then carry it with them until they got to the place that they were going to camp on the other side of the Jordan River. You know, I can only... Or I like to imagine how this might have played out. Joshua pulls together these 12 guys, pulls them aside. He tells them what it is that they're supposed to do. And as he explains to them, each of them starts looking at the guy next to them, trying to size him up and thinking, I wonder if I can get a bigger rock than he can. Verse 4, Joshua called together the 12 men that he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. Again, we've already heard this, right? To serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So now we know the why of these stones. These stones were to become a monument. They were to become a memorial. They were to become a symbol of the amazing thing that God had done for them here at the Jordan River. Verse 8, so the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Now, 
If you, in front of you, have a Bible that's not an NIV translation, what I just read may not sound or look like what your Bible says. And that's because there's some uncertainty in the text as to how to exactly translate verse 9. Some translations suggest that what Joshua has done here is actually made a second pile of stones in the middle of the Jordan River. Now, that is possible, uh, but I actually think that the NIV, the NIV translation is correct in understanding that there's only one pile of stones being talked about here, and it's the pile that eventually gets erected at Israel's new campsite on the west side of the Jordan. Verse 10, now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. Remember, there were those two and a half tribes that had settled, had claimed and settled land on the east side of the Jordan River, but they had also promised to send their fighting men across the Jordan with everybody else to help them claim the land on the other side of the Jordan. That's what we see here. Verse 14, that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant Law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And no sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. So as soon as everybody gets across, as soon as the, the priests who are carrying the ark also step out of the riverbed, the Jordan River begins to flow again at flood stage nonetheless. And so what God has done here is more than just get his people across. He's done it in a way that exalts Joshua by further connecting him to Moses. If you remember from earlier in our series, this is something that we see God had done in different ways in both the first and second chapters of Joshua. And now we see here in chapter four that God has done it again. We'll get to it. Because again, if you're not sure exactly what I mean, he's going to circle back. Verse 19. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. So west side of the Jordan River, but east of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that they'd taken out of the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan 
on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan River before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. And he did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all of the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. That's going to be important. We'll see why in a minute. But what we see here is that this text connects the crossing of the Jordan River to the crossing of the Red Sea. In both instances, God's people crossed through the waters on dry land. The the phrasing is the same. What God did back there and back then, he has now done here and now once again. And so this is how God exalts Joshua in this event. This great miracle that God had done through Moses at the Red Sea, he has now essentially repeated, but this time through Joshua. And Joshua, understanding the significance of what has happened in the crossing of the Jordan, he erects a monument to memorialize this event. And this way, every time they pass by it again in the future, they are going to remember what God has done in this place. In fact, even those who don't remember, maybe they were too young or they just weren't there for the event, they're going to see this monument and it's going to cause them to wonder, how did these stones get here? Why why is this pile of, of stones smooth like they've been polished by the water? What is the meaning of all of this? See, this monument would also create a teaching opportunity, an opportunity for an important conversation to take place. You can imagine a father saying to his son, son, those are very good questions. So let me tell you the story of the amazing thing that happened here. Daughter of mine, wait until you hear what God did for us when we first came to this land. It was truly amazing. God is so good. God was so good and so faithful to us on that day. And that is why we still seek to faithfully follow and obey him today. See, this is the power of monuments. This is the power of symbols. They help us to be faithful to God today. They help us to be faithful to God today because they remind us of how God has been so faithful to us in the past. And that is the reason that this table sits in the center of our sanctuary and is going to keep sitting here in the center of our sanctuary. It holds symbols 
of God's profound faithfulness to us in the past that help us remember to still be faithful to him today. But Joshua and the Israelites, they did more than just build a monument to this event when they first entered the land. There's more that they did. Verse 2, chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained uh, where they were in camp until they were healed. So circumcision, going all the way back to the time of Abraham, had been a symbol of the Israelite status as the specially chosen children of God. But for whatever reason, they forgot this practice while they were wandering around in the wilderness. And so upon finally entering the land, Joshua has them reinstate this practice before they go any further. Now, this would have made Israel's fighting men quite vulnerable to attack until they were able to heal up. But remember, God had done something to protect them by making sure that word of how he had stopped the waters in the Jordan, it caused great fear amongst all the Amorites and all the Canaanites. And so they were too afraid to attack them. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this is verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So this place has been called Gilgal to this day. You know, it must have seemed to Egypt as they... um, expelled and then pursued the Israelites in the Exodus and then watched them wander aimlessly in the wil- seemingly aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years that, that the Israelites were just a bunch of fools that they were lost that they were aimless and so you can probably imagine how they must have talked about the Israelites as they talked to each other about these reports that they would get about this big group of people just wandering in this wilderness But now, now that they've crossed the Jordan, God is saying to Joshua, no longer will they ever speak of you this way again. Now, there's one more thing that Joshua and the Israelites do after they cross the river. Verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. 
The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year, they ate the produce of Canaan. You know, celebrating Passover was the very last thing that they did before their escape from Egypt. And it was one of the first things that they did upon entering, finally entering into the, into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And so what we see here is yet another symbol of God's faithfulness in the past that reminded them to remain faithful to him in the present. So this text, this part of the story that we've looked at this morning is all about the amazing thing that God did in order to get his people across the Jordan River. But this story is also about what the people then did in order to make sure that they would always remember what God had done for them. They built a monument out of river stones to remind them how God stopped the Jordan River so that they could get across it. They renewed their covenant of circumcision, the symbol of their status as God's specially chosen people. They celebrated the Passover meal, a memorial celebration of God's great rescue of them from their slavery in Egypt. Each of those three, a reminder of the amazing things that God had done for them in the past, from choosing them to then rescuing them to now leading them into this long-promised promised land. Each of them a symbol of God's past faithfulness to them that when considered and remembered would then help them remain faithful to him in their day. See, symbols are more than just decorations. They're more than just a way to embellish a space. When they are chosen, when they are used correctly, they serve a very important purpose. They help us to remain faithful to God today by reminding us of God's faithfulness to us in the past. So why do we need these symbolic reminders? We need them because we are so prone to forgetfulness. And I don't mean forgetfulness that comes with getting older. I mean the kind of forgetfulness that comes from having lives that are characterized by busyness and worry and stress. You know, we live lives that are just full of responsibilities and activities and hobbies and all sorts of other things. And then on top of all that, we layer all this worry and anxiety and stress. And it's just this perfect recipe for becoming forgetful. Becoming forgetful about who we really are. And about all the amazing things that God has done to rescue us and to redeem us and to make us especially chosen people. But symbols, the right symbols, can help us to remember. You 
You know, as you came in here this morning, as you walked through those doors, if you came in here, if you walked in here distracted because of a busy, full, probably stressful week, my hope is that as you walked through those doors, you saw that cross. And that that cross reminded you of how much God loves you. If there was conflict in your home, or maybe conflict in your car on the drive over here, I hope you walked through those doors and you saw that picture and that towel. And you were reminded of how Jesus washed his disciples' feet right after they had been fighting about which one of them was the greatest. If you walked in here this morning churning on the inside because of what you heard on talk radio or what you saw on the TV about those dirty Democrats or those rotten Republicans. I hope you saw that bowl of ashes and you remembered that we are all broken and frail and in need of the mercy and the life that only God can breathe into us. Because see, when we are reminded of God's faithfulness to us in the past, then we are better able to be faithful to him and to each other in the present. Joshua said to the people, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. My hope is that this table, arrayed with all these various symbols of our faith, I hope that this table will serve for you as a regular reminder of God's faithfulness, God's amazing faithfulness to us in the past, and that in that remembering that our collective commitment to following and obeying him today is only further strengthened and deepened. But even more than this, My hope is that this table and these symbols sitting here in in our midst are also creating opportunities for us to talk with our kids, with our grandkids, with our friends that we would invite to church, that 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 these things would create questions and give us opportunities to talk to these people, these children, these friends, these neighbors about why these things matter and about how they celebrate God's unbelievable faithfulness and goodness to us in the past. And so to that end, we're going to share these symbols together this morning. 
In a moment, Isaac and I are going to distribute the elements as we do that. I'm just going to ask you to hold on to them so that we can share them together at the end. Uh, if you're a parent, you have kids here. Uh, it's up to you to decide when your kids are old enough to understand. And I do want to be very clear that you don't need to be a covenant member of this church in order to share this meal, this communion meal with us and with Jesus. You just need to be a follower of Jesus. You need to be somebody who loves him deeply and wants to follow him. And if that's you, then share this symbolic meal together with us. Sarah.
What does this bread mean? It's symbolic of the body of Jesus. The Son of God who took on human flesh in order to become one of us for the sake of showing us how to live and then dying in our place for our sins. What does it mean that we break it? It reminds us that his body was broken for us. Take and eat. What is the meaning of this cup? This cup is a symbol of the blood of Jesus. Real blood from a real body that was spilled on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Take and drink. What does it mean that we have done this together? It's a reminder to us that when Jesus died on the cross, he died in order to reconcile us to God, yes. But he also did it so that we could be reconciled to each other. And so we take it together. See, my friends, it is by remembering these things and celebrating these things, these symbols, that we are now better able to more faithfully follow Jesus today. Let me pray as the worship team comes up to lead us in our closing song. Holy Father, we thank you and praise you for your holiness, your grace, your mercy, your love, your great unstoppable plan that began in the very beginning in a garden to make a people for yourself and the great lengths to which you went in order to rescue and to redeem us. Father, as we await the great fulfillment of your great plan. Jesus, we continue to praise and worship you, to bow before you as our true rescuer king. And we thank you for your willingness to become one of us, to show us how to live, how to truly live, and then to die in our place for our sins. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to use these texts, the Bible, as well as these symbols to remind us of your unbelievable faithfulness and amazing things that you've done for us in the past. May they give us the power and grace and mercy that we need in order to live well in this beautiful but broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.